Paul is writing, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of, of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." For man was not created from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper, proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is, her, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And Father, we really ask that you would help us to be open-minded, open-hearted to what your word says, especially when we get to these sections like this that are so difficult to decipher. Lord, may we, we see your heart, the heart that we see so clearly in Jesus. May we see it even in just a text about head coverings. May we know you for who you are. And may we desire above all things to rest in our equality, and to follow after you in our humility and submission. Do this for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. I want to start off by reading you a quote from a theologian. I never do this, but I wanted to do this because it gives some perspective of, of this text we're going to look at. The, this passage is probably the most complex controversial and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. Lucky me. <laughs> this is a hard section. It's difficult for many, many reasons. It's difficult because the language that Paul uses is hard to decipher. You, you'll probably notice if you're using a different version than the ESV, the, the version I'm going to teach from, you'll probably see there's some ways that the language is different sometimes. There, there's, it's controversial because there's huge, hugely different interpretations with this text. It, it can be hard for us to, to understand, okay, what is God really wanting us to say here or know here? And it's also difficult to, I think it's difficult for us to deal with because here's the reality. There are many of us here who have experienced very bad authority, specifically bad male authority. And having experienced bad male authority, or maybe even you've experienced a situation where 
this idea of women submitting to men or wives submitting to husbands has been used as a weapon against you. And you feel like, man, I, I don't know if I want to hear this. It's hard. It's a really difficult place. Now, I was scheduled to teach the rest of chapter 11 today. I was going to go through all the way through verse 34. So I've been preparing all week to teach through verse 34. And the more I began to kind of prepare and sort of write out what, what I felt like God was leading me to say and, and unpack, the more I thought, there's no way I can do this whole thing in one week. So next week was supposed to be continuing the God Who Here series. That's going to have to wait till September. And I'm going to split this whole chapter into two sections. But the truth is, these two sections do go together. They go together because they teach something that is really important for us to get, a principle that's bigger than just gender issues. What we see here, what we're going to see here, is a reality that, that we need both to understand both our authentic equality. What does it mean for us to be equals? But we also need to recognize what it means to have humble submission. Because here's the reality. This, this week I'm hoping to pick out four non-negotiable principles as we talk about sort of gender roles in a church gathering. Next week I hope to show three purposes that, for the practice of communion. But both of these sections demonstrate how the authentic equality that we have from Christ can only be experienced and understood in the humble submission that we see from Christ. If we don't see Jesus as the one who eternally shows us the humility of God, then we're going to miss what it means for us to be equals together. And so we pick it up in verse 2. And Paul starts off by saying, Now I commend you because you remember me and, and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And there's already controversy. There are some commentators that want to say, Paul's just being sarcastic. Because obviously the Corinthians weren't doing things well. Well, there's times when Paul is being sarcastic. But I don't think this is one of them. When Paul talks about traditions, we need to understand what he means by tradition. Simply it just means orally transferred truths. In other words, truths that are passed down through teaching. In other words, they didn't read a book and say, okay, here's the traditions. They just passed this down. And also when Paul's talking about traditions here in this context, in 1 Corinthians, is probably what he, and if you remember Apollos, and if you remember Cephas, they probably all taught these same traditions. That is, they were teaching the, these, these, Greek, uh, these Greeks in Corinth, they were teaching these people about who Jesus is through the Old Testament. So they teach the Old Testament scriptures in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus did through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so when they say traditions, we think traditions, we think something's been around for a long time, something that uh, we just kind of do because, well, everyone's always done it. Don't think that this way. This is simply a truth that's been passed down to them. He's taught these Greeks who would have worshipped in really pagan ways until they came to faith in Jesus. He's taught them what does it look like to worship Jesus? What does it look like to worship God's only begotten Son? That's probably what he's referring to as traditions. 
And specifically, the context seems to hint that the tradition that maybe he was talking about, the teaching that he's talking about, is this reality that we are all equal in Christ. Paul would write to the, uh, to the Galatians this. Listen, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul would write, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Until Jesus, I mean, it's funny because I think it, 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 right now, where we sit right now, we go, equality will duh. Yeah, sure. Obvious. But it's not. It didn't exist. There was no such thing as this idea of equality until Jesus. Do you guys know that? In fact, one of the things we, one of the reasons we have some of these teachings, like what we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll see later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I got to say too, what we see in 1 Corinthians 11 is really important to understand 1 Corinthians 14. What, what we have studied in the past in 1 Timothy chapter 2, even what we saw back in 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage and how there's an equality, especially in the marriage bed, in marriage. This was all radically revolutionary stuff that came in with Jesus. And it was so radical that what would happen is you'd see women who were freed, praise God, freed from feeling like they're second-class citizens, half the value of a man. They're free, and so they begin to walk in that freedom, and sometimes in a way that Paul says, wait a second, we've got to bring some correction. You're free. You're indeed equal, but there's a but coming. There's something, there's, there's something else that's here. There's a way that this freedom we have in Christ needs to be displayed by both men and women. And so he, he, he starts off by saying in verse 3, he wants them to understand, not just tradition, but understand headship. Look at verse 3. But, he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The word for man there is a word that means mankind, not males. Other places here, it uses a word for males. This is the word for mankind, okay? The head of every male, or I'm sorry, every, every human is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Here's another controversy. What does it mean by head? It is true that the word head, both the Greek word and the English word, can mean source, like the head of a river, it can mean source, all right? There's only really one place where the Apostle Paul uses the word head, meaning source. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. Here, though, it's really clear that head means what it usually means, which is authority. In fact, if, if head means source in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is a big argument for, for people who believe something different than me about this, if it means source, it actually teaches us something heretical about Jesus. Because God is not the source of Jesus. He's not the source. So that's, a, that's actually a, a, a Greek heresy that was refuted in the early, early second century. That, 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 you know, he's not some emanation from God. He is God, as we'll see in a minute. So it seems pretty clear, even right off the bat, that this is talking about authority. Talking about headship. Now, I want you to focus specifically on the phrase, the head of Christ is God, because it shows us what God means by authority. 
It shows us the level that God's setting for what authority looks like, what headship looks like. Because the Bible teaches, listen, that Jesus, that God, Jesus being God the Son, is completely equal to God the Father as in also God the Spirit. The three are one. And yet the Bible also teaches that God the Son defers to God the Father in a similar way that God the Spirit defers to God the Son. Do you guys know what I mean by defer? To defer means a little bit less than submit. To submit means you, you obey whether you feel like it or not. To defer means I want this person to have preeminence. I want this person to be seen. I want this person to call the shots. That's deference. Sometimes we use it in English today to defer to somebody or to use deference today. We would say like, it's like a polite uh, reverence or a polite submission. But it's bigger than that in Scripture. It's the idea that, that there's, there's no resistance to me saying, I, I want you to be in charge, so to speak. So, so here's, here's what I want to do quickly. I want to show you uh, several verses, mostly through the Gospel of John, that shows this, this tension between God, Jesus being God the Son, being God in the flesh, and also deferring to the Father. Listen to this. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. You see both in this verse, both a deference, whatever the Father does is what I'm going to do, and an equality, I do whatever the Father does. In fact, if you read the, the context of some of these verses, you'll see the religious leaders of his day get, wanting to kill Jesus because they think he's blaspheming, making himself equal to God. Jesus says plainly in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. That definitely got him uh, killed. In John chapter 14, Jesus says this, You have heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would, re you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. How does that work? But John starts off his gospel, plain as day, saying this, listen, in John chapter 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was, was not anything made that was made. In other words, he's creator God. Why is this important? Because we're talking about, in Jesus, we're talking about creator God taking on flesh, humbling himself. Not because he'd never been humbled before, but in taking on flesh, what Jesus does, what God the Son does, is he demonstrates the humility of God that's always been. He demonstrates a deference within Father, Son, and Spirit that has always been there. This is part of the character of God's seeing. This is really important to understand. And it's one of the big controversies. In recent years, recent decades to be fair, there's been debate about this idea of when did God the Son start deferring to God the Father? And some say, oh no, that just happened with the fact when he became a man, he becomes a man, then he starts deferring, and now that he's back in heaven, he doesn't defer anymore. And so the argument is, because he doesn't defer anymore, women don't have to defer to men anymore, uh, congregants don't have to defer to elders anymore, there is no hierarchy in any way, there is no authority in, of any kind, that's all done. But actually, the Bible doesn't seem to teach that. Jesus didn't seem to teach 
that he just started to defer when he became a man, but that he's always deferred to the Father, just like the Spirit's always deferred to him. There's this mutual humility within the Godhead. I know this is kind of heady stuff, but it's important. So that when we get to the the time when Jesus, we get to this reality of Jesus, of God the Son becoming a man in Jesus. Here's, Here's what we read about it. Listen, in Philippians chapter two, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. That doesn't mean he stopped being God. It just means he stopped freely exercising his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Here's why this is important, okay? Humility is what God calls us to. And we tend to think of humility in terms of, yeah, I'm a bad guy. I need to admit I'm a bad guy. But humility is not putting yourself down. It's seeing yourself in the right place. And Jesus here, listen, when he, when he takes on man, he's not putting himself down, though he is coming down to our level. He's actually lifting us up. He's lifting us to a place where we recognize, gosh, Humility is actually demonstrating Christ's character. When I am willing to submit to another, when I'm willing to just be in my place, actually I'm showing something of who God is and what God is like. Now I want to be really aware of the fact that I'm saying this as a white male. I'm serious. I I, I recognize that, that in our culture... Though as an American, I have a few handicaps. But in our culture, uh, in a sense, I still have the power. I, I recognize there, in those power dynamics, there's still something of that. But I'm also here to say, as a Jesus follower, none of that really matters. Because God doesn't call me to change who I am. He calls me to see who I am in Christ. Do you understand the difference? So when we're talking about this, when we're talking about equality and submission, when we, when we begin to unpack, as Paul begins to unpack the issue of gender roles at church, he, he, he's, he's starting with saying, okay, the, the, the aspect of humility, the aspect of, hu- of submission is about following Christ. So there's an application for everyone, male and female. Are you guys following me so far? Okay. Now, look at verse, verse 4. This, this is where it gets hard to understand. This is where we have to... St- begin to really unpack what's cultural, just first century Corinth, only really applied to them, and what's universal, all believers for all time. Look look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is, is the same as if her head were shaven. We'll talk about the shaven bit in a second, but just follow me right now, all right? What we want to notice first and foremost here is in the early church, when Jesus' followers first started walking, that both men and women had a voice in the local church. So, so again, we're very, we're very sort of in modern times, you know, lots of churches have 
women preach, and so the fact that we have women lead prayers isn't that sort of cutting edge, is it? But it would have been, it would be really cutting edge about 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Because there was a time when in, in a wrong application of these things, we began to, to kind of ease back, as, as Christians, ease back into what is the normative patriarchy in the world. Because all over the world, you guys who are from other, other cultures, you guys who are from non-Western cultures, you guys know this is true, isn't it? Men rule, don't they? That's just the way it is. But that's not necessarily the design of God. Not the way it's, it's worked out in a patriarchy. In the early church, what you had happening was men and women both had a voice. They both prophesied. We'll talk about prophecy when we get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Prophecy isn't the same as teaching, by the way. But we'll talk about prophecy, but, but, but the, the truth is it has some kind of instructional value, and it's a verbal gift that was being used in front of everybody. They prayed in public. Do you guys realize, I don't know if you guys know, maybe you guys have been part of this church background in the past. There's actually churches today where if you go to a, their prayer meeting as a woman and you pray, someone else will repeat your prayers word for word because they want to make sure God hears them. A shocking, yeah. I, I sound shocking to you, but that's, there's traditions that still do that. Yet the scripture is really clear, isn't it? Both men and women have a voice. But we get to this issue of shaving your head, and we get to this issue of what it says in verse 6, and we go, okay, what's this got to do with anything? Look at verse 6, and we'll explain it. He says, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair, cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Whoa. Now, everyone with, every woman with short hair is kind of going, oh, my goodness. Here's the, here's the reality, okay? This is where we need to recognize the, what's going on culturally. In first century Corinth, women who did not have head coverings, they didn't wear a head covering or at least their hair down in a way that showed they had a long hair, they didn't kind of give the appearance that they were covered, were kind of saying, I'm sexually available. They could have even been saying, listen, I'm, uh, I, I've been a temple prostitute or I am a temple prostitute. So there was a cultural thing that was going on here that Paul's going, listen, you can't look that way. It, it, you, know, you can't look in a way that the culture's going to go, hey, what's going on with that, these Christian people? But also there's something for the men to consider. In, 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 in pagan uh, worship, in worshiping false gods, men covered their heads. Now, some of you are thinking right now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Jewish men cover their heads when they pray. I've been to Jerusalem, went to the Wailing Wall, really cool experience. Had to put a little cap on my head, a little yarmulke. That's what they do. They cover themselves. There's some arguments that that, didn't, that practice with Jews didn't happen until around the second century and beyond, maybe even in response to this, to separate themselves from Christians. doesn't mean it's wrong to wear a yarmulke, by the way. It just means it's cultural. But the point is this, Okay. Because pagans did it in the first century, Paul's saying, you shouldn't do it. It dishonors your head, Jesus. Wives, you shouldn't be uncovered because it makes it look like you're sexually available when you're actually married. You shouldn't do it. Now, and we talk about this, I hope, even explaining what the cultural things were, you realize that there really isn't a need for us in 21st century for women to wear head coverings. Now, you can some women feel that, look, they want to be honoring to my husband. I want to be honoring to God's word. And so I want to wear head covering. 
Nothing wrong with wearing a head covering. But I hope you can see that you don't have to. There's a cultural thing. But here's what you do have to do. Here's what we do need to think about. Forget about Corinth. Let's think about Norwich. 21st century Norwich. Here's what we need to think about. We need to think about how our lifestyle and our dress, what that communicates. What does it communicate? It's interesting here, and we're going to see this when we get to chapter 14, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talks to the church. He exhorts the church, assuming unbelievers are going to be at their services. Now, I, I don't know everyone here super, super well. I mean, I know most of you, but I don't know everyone. And I definitely don't know your hearts. Only God knows your hearts. But there's a good chance that some of you guys don't yet really know Jesus in person. Maybe you're just still investigating stuff. I don't know. But, but that's normal. I hope, you feel, I hope you don't feel totally odd being here. We hope you feel welcomed and loved. We hope you feel like this is something that's helpful for you. Because the, the New Testament seems to show that church, the church is for believers gathering, the expectation is there's going to be unbelievers watching us, which is why loving one another is the, is the best witness we can have. When they see that we're committed to each other, that we're really different, that's a witness. Talk more about that later. The point is that Paul's saying, listen, you should be thinking about whether you're wearing a veil or not wearing a veil because it communicates something about what you believe and who you worship about what your values are, about what's important to you. So in Norwich, we need to think about what do our lifestyles and our dress communicate about our sexual ethics? Because as we've seen all through 1 Corinthians, right, one of the, one of the places that God says, here's where, where we should be distinct as Jesus followers, is in, in the area of sexual ethics. We should be above board with that. And how we dress can communicate that. Now this is tricky, isn't it? This is really tricky. Does that mean that if I go to the beach, I shouldn't take my shirt off? Probably does, but for different reasons than being too sexual. I'm 54 years old. I probably should take my shirt off. But no, but, but what it does mean, listen, it does mean that we need to be sensitive, both as men and women, about what are we projecting by what we're doing. Uh, when I was doing youth work in the States, uh, I had, uh, uh, when I got married, I was doing construction work, so my hands were big. They were bigger than they are. And they, they shrunk down as I started, started doing desk work. And uh, so we went to this uh, water park, and I lost my wedding ring. And we didn't have any money. I was a youth pastor, and we were broken. So uh, basically, I didn't buy a new wedding, wedding ring. And some, some people from another church came to visit our youth group because they wanted to hire a youth pastor, and they wanted to kind of get some advice. And they, they go, oh, John's a lovely guy. He really, really appreciate him. I can't believe he's not married. They say to the pastor's wife, pastor, oh, no, no, he's, he's happily married. He's got two kids. And, oh, really? He doesn't have a ring on. Hmm. What's that all about? They assumed I wasn't wearing a wedding ring doing youth ministry, I don't know, to make myself available or something? Now, that was ridiculous. There was no other way they could accuse me. But it did show me, gosh, I need to think about things like this. I didn't think about what kind of appearance am I giving. But also, here's what it means. Listen, we need to think about what our worship services say. Listen. The order of our worship services, what they say about the God we worship. See, because from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through the end of chapter 14, the whole topic is order in church gatherings. Whether that's men and women, whether that's how, how we go to the communion table next week, whether it's about how the gifts of the Spirit operate, which will be the several weeks after that. But it's all about order. 
Now, now here's, here's what's, what's happening here, okay? Paul wants us to recognize, he wants the Corinthians to recognize, you need to be sensitive to the culture you live in. God has foreordained that you be there so you could be a witness. He saved you here so that you could witness here in Corinth, just like he saved you here in, in Norfolk so you could be a witness here in Norfolk. And you need to be sensitive to the culture that you live in. What does your lifestyle communicate? That's the big picture here. Then he gets into something even more difficult for us as modern people to hear. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. That's weird. How does that work? Now, I want to be clear here. It's really clear from the rest of Scripture, and even the way Paul talks about the Genesis account that we'll talk about in a second, that he's not saying women have a lesser glory. They don't have a lesser value or show something less about God, but they have a different purpose. Scripture is super clear, listen, that uh, God created human beings. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, New Living Translation. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Both men and women are image bearers of God. In fact, if you're not a Jesus follower right now, you could even be an atheist. You're still an image bearer. We still see you have value because you buried God's image. Broken, as ours is broken, but you still bear God's image. You need to know that. We don't value you because we think you might have potential. We don't value you because you might be a convert. We don't value you because we think, you know, you have uh, something to offer us. We value you because you're made in God's image. Whether you're a man or a woman. It's not a lesser glory. It's a different purpose. In fact, listen, it's also a special, uh, uh, it's important for us to understand God's not lowering the standard for men or women. It's not a lower standard. It's a specific kind of accountability. Look at verse 8. He says, For a man, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for women, but women for man. Gosh, this sounds really sexist, doesn't it? To our modern ears. But Paul, again, is referring to the creation account, this time Genesis chapter 2. Paul is, is, is being really clear that what the creation account implies still applies to first century Corinth because it's from the Scripture. Guess what that means? It still applies to us in 21st century Norwich. L listen to this, okay? Uh, chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, that's Adam, and while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed, it up, uh, closed up its, its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, don't miss what the picture here is, okay? I know some of you right now are thinking about, what? That sounds like mythology, weirdness. I, we, you can talk to me about that afterwards, but here's the thing you don't want to miss. What is the picture that we're supposed to see? What's the lesson we're supposed to see about creation, about God's view of creation, about God's creative work? First of all, listen, God brings forth Eve from Adam's side to communicate what? Equality. If you wanted to be, if you wanted her to be over him, he would take a chunk out of his big head. If you wanted to be under him, she would take a bit of his toe. Purposely from the side, meant to come alongside. 
The fact that God says he's making her, in fact, you read this earlier in the account, a helper comparable to him, we sometimes think of help or helper as something less than the person being helped. But Jesus said it's better to give than receive, didn't he? Jesus came as a help. The Bible refers to God as a helper over and over and over again. So this is not a lesser position. So there's the inequality. But also it's important we don't miss this part. God allows Adam to name Eve. And naming someone, giving a name to somebody, communicates authority. Super clear. You can't get away from that. God gave Adam and Eve, of course, dominion over all the animals. How did Adam first show his dominion? He names cow, horse, weird thing in Australia. That's what he did. (laughs) He names them. That's That's a showing of authority. And in naming, listen, in naming Eve, he's he's communicating he has a responsibility for her as part of God's design. It's interesting, too, when he says, she's bone of my bones, flesh of my best, flesh of my flesh. He's loving her as himself. Do you see this? This is the picture that, that God's showing. See, it's not lesser glory, but a different purpose. It's not lesser value, but it is an authoritative structure. There's a structure there. Now, this scares us, doesn't it? Especially you ladies. I'm so sorry. This has got to be scary for you. i got to listen to this dude? I don't know. It is, it is hard, isn't it? Because all of us have also this probably in common. We've all been under bad authority. So the idea of anybody having any say-so over us is scary. And we all live under this delusion that we're actually autonomous. You know what autonomous means? It means a law to yourself. It's just not true. You're not, it's just not true. The only real autonomous being is God himself. Only he is a law to himself. But we, we, we are afraid of bad authority, but this is why it's such good news. Jesus is such good news. Because Jesus comes, listen, and he, he demonstrates what good authority looks like, and he provides for good authority. Listen to this. This is, this is part of our our theme verse for our church being called Servant's Church, Jesus the Servant, and it's his church. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers over the, uh, of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. <clears throat> In other words, he says, I want a different kind of authority. He says, I'm demanding, both I'm demonstrating and demanding a different kind of authority. Listen, he says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that Jesus is talking about himself, came not to serve but to be served and to give his life a ransom for many. Authority is part of God's good creation. Order in the church, whether it has to do with elders and congregants, male and female what actually happens in the service, all of that is about showing the orderly goodness of our God. Are you guys following me? See, see, what Paul wants these guys to see is there's an authority here that's part of God's original creation. But he doesn't stop here. Because here's where I actually kind of agree with my egalitarian friends. You say, what's an egalitarian? Well, when it comes to sort of, uh, when it comes to kind of the way we kind of label what people believe about this section, about 
the relationship between husbands and wives specifically. One position would be a patriarch position. That is, whoever the oldest male is, he's in charge of everybody. So that oldest man's in charge of every man, woman, child, right? That's the patriarchy. Or a group of men are over everybody, and no one has a say-so. But then there is what's called uh, egalitarianism, which means, no, women, men and women are equal, therefore, and they are, therefore, it says, they can have all have any position. Any position of authority is available to anybody, male or female. That's egalitarianism. What we believe at Servants is what's called complementarianism, which is that male and female are equal before God, equal in Christ, equal value, equal importance, but they have different roles. Now, what the egalitarians say about this text is they say the pinnacle of this text is these two verses in, in verses 11 and 12, and I agree. Because even as a complementarian in, complementarianism, which means I believe male and female have different roles, I do believe that when, when Jesus says clearly, or Paul says clearly, that, that you know, the, the head of every uh, uh, wife is, is her husband, that I'm the head of my household. doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want. It means I have a responsibility for my household. I have a responsibility to love and serve my wife in a way that helps her flourish. That's my, that's my authority. That's my responsibility. That's my headship. And as an elder, as one of the elders of the church, we have a corporate responsibility, not to lord over you, but to serve you and help you flourish as best we can. That's our headship in the church. And I believe that Scripture teaches pretty clearly that it's meant to be male. But I think, listen, this is the peak for this reason. Look what it says. In verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Listen, this is the fourth and final principle that we need to get out of this, and that is this. Dependency is a function of God's loving design. In other words, listen, we're not independent, we're interdependent. You see, here's the reality. Listen, marriage, husband and wife, is meant to model where community starts and how community works. And the church, listen, is meant to be a community because of this reason. God's glory is best seen in a community. This is why God says, listen, he says, it's not good for man to be alone, way back in the garden. It's not that, oh, poor Adam, he's lonely. He's, no, God's interested in something way bigger than Adam's personal experience. God wants people, the people he makes in his image, to have something they can't get anywhere else. God wants people to have him. And he can't be seen in a single individual. He's only really seen in a community. Oh, we bear God's image. Yes, we do. But unless you have someone to bear that image too, you're not actually image bearing. See, see if, you, if you can follow me with this. When we get together, we're meant to model this community. We're meant to model that our God is relational. We're not meant to model sameness, but we are meant to model oneness. We don't gather so that you can have an individual experience. We gather to be a people for God. 
Are you guys following me? Now, I hope you can see Paul bringing up this issue of of sort of male and female gender roles in church and this reality of of us needing to understand that we are are authentically equal, but we also have to practice a humble submission, that that feeds into what we're going to see in chapters 12, 13, and 14 about the gifts of the Spirit and the whole body being involved in ministry. I hope you guys are beginning to click. Because this is what, what Paul's getting at. In fact, listen, this is what God says, again, in Genesis chapter 2, that hints to this community that he's going to build on earth. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, don't worry, we're not going to get naked. As a community, that's not going to happen, but we should be transparent. We should be the kind of people because we know that we're covered by the righteousness of Jesus that we can be real with each other. I have to say, I, I know I do this all the time, and everyone kind of smirks and thinks, you're so corny, John, but I am so thankful for my wife, Sarah. I'm so thankful for 32 years of really good marriage. Not always perfect, not always easy, but good. I'm thankful that we can be naked and not ashamed. And I don't mean that just physically, I mean that emotionally. And we're always trying to grow in this. We're always trying to learn to be more open about what we feel, about what we think, about where we're at. And what's hard about that is because one of the things that we've been dealing with lately is is the reality that we recognize there's things that we're each feeling that expose really false worship in our hearts. So we think, well, why should I share it? Why should I share that with my wife that I'm feeling this way about our relationship, it really is just showing me that I'm worshiping something other than Jesus because I need her help to worship Jesus. That's why. And so I want to be open about my insecurities with her. She wants to be open about her insecurities with me. That's what real intimacy is. You see, marriage, again, is meant to model this community that we're meant to be, that we have such confidence in the grace of God we can be open about our, fault, our, our failings and our faults. You know why? God already covers those things. This is where we're moving towards. This is, this is what we mean by dependency as a function of God's loving design. This is what Paul wants these guys to say. Listen, women can't be independent. Men can't be independent. We need each other. A good friend of mine, who also, happens also to be a complementarian, we were talking about the issue of of this in church structure. You're like, can women be pastors? That kind of a thing. And I'm happy to talk to you about that afterwards if you want to talk about it. But we were talking about that. And he says, you know, one of the things that really hit me was if you have an egalitarian church structure, you don't need men or you don't need women. Because you're all the same, so it doesn't make it really make a difference if you're men or women. But complementarians, we, we realize even if we're all males who are elders, guess what? We need to know what the women think. We need to know what the women's perspective is. We need to know what the women need because guess what? We don't know. And we need to know how the women can help us because guess what? We can't do this on our own. There's an interdependency. Now, I'm going to go fast with this last bit. Verses 13 to 15, follow me. Judge for yourselves, Paul says. Is it proper for, proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Now, all the guys with long hair are freaking out. But if a woman has long hair, it's, it's, it is her glory for her hair is given to her as a covering. Now, when he uses this phrase, is it proper or does not nature itself, he's probably not talking about a creation 
that women always have longer hair than guys. In my case, that's true, but it's not always the case in everybody. In everyone's case, not always true in everyone's case. But, but he's probably talking more about what's, what's kind of social convention. In other words, it's kind of obvious to everybody always that someone looks male or someone looks female, even in our really confused day of trying to figure out what personal programs, pronouns to use. And it is, it's tricky, man. It's really tricky because we want to love people who are struggling with these things. We don't want to like go, oh, you're stupid. You're obviously a guy. We don't want to be like that. <laughs> no. We want to love people. But sometimes it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky sometimes when, when people want to be androgynous, neither male nor female, or look that way. Now, here, here's what's happening. Paul is not saying you should fulfill the stereotypes of men and women. Women, where's your apron and your go-go boots? That's what women should be dressed like. Men, where's your meat? Bacon on a stick. Where's the sports equipment? No, he's not saying fulfill those stupid stereotypes. What he's saying is this. He's confirming there's a difference between men and women and the culture ought to see that we value that. We value women as women. We value men as men. Can we be honest here? It's hard to know how to define that nowadays, isn't it? Can we also be honest here? Can we also be real here? Men and women have more in common than they do have what's different. But it's hard. See, this doesn't mean that we should be, we should lack compassion with those who are struggling with gender issues. We shouldn't. We should still have really, real compassion for them. It's hard. We live in a culture that says you decide what you are, you decide if you're male or female. That's, don't mean to be, I hope this isn't offensive, but that's, that's really crazy. That's never existed in history. There's no science behind that. It's sad. But they still need compassion. If someone comes here that's obviously a man dressed as a woman, we still need to love them as a person, as an image bearer. That's not the big issue. The big issue is they need to know Jesus. But we also need to be the kind of people that because we believe in interdependency, we value men and women and the differences. Viva la difference. Lastly, verse 16, he says... If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I say we like that because actually is an emphasized word in the original language. Not that I know the original language, but I can read guys who do. And when he says we, he's probably referring to himself and Apollos and Peter and all the other apostles that they, of, of readings or, or, or they would have heard of in Corinth. He's saying, look, all of us, who have this responsibility to take the gospel out everywhere and to clarify it for everyone, we keep this practice of women being women and men being men. We keep this practice of, of male leadership in churches. We keep this practice of both men and women having a voice but having different roles. That's what he's saying. Paul's not saying, hey, here's an option. You, you can do this. You know, that's my opinion. You can do what you want. No, he's not saying it's optional. He's saying this practice is universal. That's what he's saying. Does that mean we should divide with churches that are egalitarian? Absolutely not. They preach the real Jesus, we should love them and appreciate them and learn from them. But it does mean we want to say, God, this is, this is what you're saying, we should say it. This also means this, and I'll close with this. This is really hard to apply. It's really hard to know how this works. I need to confess right now and ask you guys to forgive me because I know I've made some mistakes with this. 
I've given the impression in my leadership at Serpent's Church, before we had other elders hold me accountable, I gave the impression that women really don't have a place to serve up front at servants. And I'm sorry for that. That wasn't what I desired. What I desired was for men to step up. And you know what I did? I made men feel bad and women feel worse. Was my theology wrong? No, my application was wrong. It's really hard to know how to apply this stuff. This is why as an eldership we're talking about how do we do this? How do we further equip women to be more vocal in the church? Where do we draw the line for women and men in ministry considering all the other things that Scripture says? We're wrestling with this, wanting to be honoring to Scripture, wanting to be under the authority of Scripture, wanting to submit to God. What does this look like? It's hard. So what does that mean for us? Ephesians chapter 4, I'll close with this. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Here's an individual calling for each of us. To which you have been called, we've been called to all follow Jesus, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, as we're trying to figure out how we do this. Bearing with one another in love, notice, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, we need to maintain Unity as we're seeking like-mindedness in how we apply this. This is why some of our home groups only men teach, and some of our home groups men and women teach. People go, that's, that's really inconsistent. Well, it's also kind of the fact that we, we recognize different people disagree with how we apply this stuff. And, and people that we love and people we respect in our own church disagree, and we want to be honoring of that. This is hard, isn't it? But can you agree with me? Listen, can you at least agree with me? That if we're going to operate in generals, we need to basically, it's going to require us to recognize our authentic equality and our humble submission. Do you recognize both those things need to be there if we're going to actually enjoy what God has for us? Can we pursue this together? If you're not a Christian here today, this, you might go, this is like what? What century are we in? What's going on? And I hope you sense that we are wanting to honestly wrestle with what we believe God has said. And I hope you get a sense of the Jesus who actually set women and men free, and that you want to know him. Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray that you would help us all to know you more. Lord Jesus, would you do that work in us where we are submitted to you first and foremost, and we have your wisdom to know how to walk in these things, Lord. We long to see men and women love you with all their hearts and love one another in a way that brings you glory. Do that in us, Lord, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. amen.